Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast, subpar readings of extremely niche fiction. My name is Tyke Alhambra, and according to at least one pseudo-celebrity during a 2am drunken Reddit pillaging, I'm trash trying desperately to stay relevant with a pathetic podcast. Thanks for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available. The link is in the show notes. Couple of quick things before we get into this week's episode. I hit 700,000 downloads near the end of October and also broke the one-month download record, traditionally October, for the fifth straight year in a row. Thank you all so much. The next big goal for the show is to reach 1 million downloads by the end of 2023. Ambitious, but I think it can be done. Speaking of 2023, got something big planned for an off-site project. More details on that later, but if I can pull it off, it'll be awesome. The Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities is published and available for purchase. It's on Amazon, link is in the show notes. It's my debut collection of weird fiction, and I'm really proud of it, and I know you'll love it. I've set another goal for the audiobook of Tikamakosa to be available by the end of the year, but barring some sort of miracle, that will have to be postponed. If it was for any other reason than mental health, I would try to shove it in, but there are mental health reasons behind it, and that takes precedence over everything. I apologize for the delay. It's either that or I pay someone to do the reading, and I'm not sure I can afford that right now. I've been working on NaNoWriMo, though it's actually more like NaShaStroRimo. Been working on a couple different short stories that have been languishing on my hard drive, usually around a thousand words a day, and hopefully we'll have a new collection starting to shape up very soon. Very exciting. Lastly, if you're a new or upcoming writer of weird fiction and would like your story featured on the show, please feel free to write in. I'll be happy to discuss details with you. Thank you all so much for listening, and let's get on with the show. The Randolph Carter Chronicles, Volume 6, Out of the Aeons, by H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Heald. Manuscript found among the effects of the late Richard H. Johnson, Ph.D., curator of the Cabot Museum of Archaeology, Boston, Massachusetts. 1. It is not likely that anyone in Boston, or any alert reader elsewhere, will ever forget the strange affair of the Cabot Museum. The newspaper publicity given to that hellish mummy, the antique and terrible rumors vaguely linked with it, the morbid wave of interest in cult activities during 1932, and the frightful tale of the two intruders on December 1st of that year all combined to form one of those classic mysteries which go down for generations as folklore and become the nuclei of whole cycles of horrific speculation. Everyone seems to realize, too, that Something very vital and unutterably hideous was suppressed in the public accounts of the culminant horrors. Those first disquieting hints as to the condition of one of the two bodies were dismissed and ignored too abruptly, nor were the singular modifications in the mummy given the following up which their news value would normally prompt. It also struck people as queer that the mummy was never restored to its case. In these days of expert taxidermy, the excuse that its disintegrating condition made exhibition impractical seemed a peculiarly lame one. As curator of the museum, I am in a position to reveal all the suppressed facts, but this I shall not do during my lifetime. There are things about the world and universe which it is better for the majority not to know, 
and I have not departed from the opinion in which all of us, museum staff, physicians, reporters, and police, concurred at the period of the horror itself. At the same time, it seems proper that a matter of such overwhelming scientific and historic importance should not remain wholly unrecorded, hence this account which I have prepared for the benefit of serious students. I shall place it among various papers to be examined after my death, leaving its fate to the discretion of my executors. Certain threats and unusual events during the past weeks have led me to believe that my life, as well as that of other museum officials, is in some peril through the enmity of several widespread secret cults of Asiatics, Polynesians, and heterogeneous mystical devotees. Hence, it is possible that the work of the executors may not be long postponed. Executors note, Dr. Johnson died suddenly and rather mysteriously of heart failure on April 22, 1933. Wentworth Moore, taxidermist of the museum, disappeared around the middle of the preceding month. On February 18th of the same year, Dr. William Minot, who superintended a dissection connected with the case, was stabbed in the back, dying the following day. The real beginning of the horror, I suppose, was in 1879, long before my term as curator, when the museum acquired that ghastly, inexplicable mummy from the Orient Shipping Company. Its very discovery was monstrous and menacing, for it came from a crypt of unknown origin and fabulous antiquity on a bit of land suddenly upheaved from the Pacific's floor. On May 11, 1878, Captain Charles Weatherby of the freighter Ariadnes, bound from Wellington, New Zealand to Valparaiso, Chile, had sighted a new island unmarked on any chart and evidently of volcanic origin. It projected quite boldly out of the sea in the form of a truncated cone. A landing party under Captain Weatherby noted evidences of long submersion on the rugged slopes which they climbed, while at the summit there were signs of recent destruction, as by an earthquake. Among the scattered rubble were massive stones of manifestly artificial shaping, and a little examination disclosed the presence of some of that prehistoric cyclopean masonry found on certain Pacific islands and forming a perpetual archaeological puzzle. Finally, the sailors entered a massive stone crypt, judged to have been part of a much larger edifice, and to have originally lain far underground, in one corner of which the frightful mummy crouched. After a short period of virtual panic caused partly by certain carvings on the walls, the men were induced to move the mummy to the ship, though it was only with fear and loathing that they touched it. Close to the body, as if once thrust into its clothes, was a cylinder of an unknown metal containing a roll of thin, bluish-white membrane of equally unknown nature, inscribed with peculiar characters in a grayish, indeterminable pigment. In the center of the vast stone floor was a suggestion of a trap door, but the party lacked apparatus sufficiently powerful to move it. The Cabot Museum, then newly established, saw the meager reports of the discovery and at once took steps to acquire the mummy and the cylinder. Curator Pickman made a personal trip to Valparaiso and outfitted a schooner to search for the crypt where the thing had been found, though meeting with failure in this matter. At the recorded position of the island, nothing but the sea's unbroken expanse could be discerned and the seekers realized that the same seismic forces which had suddenly thrust the island up had carried it down again to the watery darkness where it had brooded for untold aeons. The secret of that immovable trap door would never be solved. The mummy and the cylinder, however, remained, 
and the former was placed on exhibition early in November 1879 in the museum's Hall of Mummies. The Cabot Museum of Archaeology, which specializes in such remnants of ancient and unknown civilizations as do not fall within the domain of art, is a small and scarcely famous institution, though one of high standing in scientific circles. It stands in the heart of Boston's exclusive Beacon Hill district in Mount Vernon Street near Joy, housed in a former private mansion with an added wing in the rear, and was a source of pride to its austere neighbors until the recent terrible events brought it an undesirable notoriety. The Hall of Mummies on the western side of the original mansion, which was designed by Bullfinch and erected in 1819 on the second floor, is justly esteemed by historians and anthropologists as harboring the greatest collection of its kind in America. Here may be found typical examples of Egyptian embalming from the ancient Saqqara specimens to the last Coptic attempts of the 8th century. Mummies of other cultures, including the prehistoric Indian specimens recently found in the Aleutian Islands, agonized Pompeian figures molded in plaster from tragic hollows in the ruined choking ashes, naturally mummified bodies from mines and other excavations in all parts of the earth, some surprised by their terrible entombment in the grotesque postures caused by their last tearing death throes, everything, in short, which any collection of the sort could well be expected to contain. In 1879, of course, it was much less ample than it is now, yet even then it was remarkable, but that shocking thing from the primal cyclopean crypt on an ephemeral sea-spawned island was always its chief attraction and most impenetrable mystery. The mummy was that of a medium-sized man of unknown race and was cast in a peculiar crouching posture. The face, half-shielded by claw-like hands, had its underjaw thrust far forward while the shriveled features bore an expression of fright so hideous that few spectators could view them unmoved. The eyes were closed, with lids clamped down tightly over eyeballs apparently bulging and prominent. Bits of hair and beard remained, and the color of the whole was a sort of dull, neutral gray. In texture, the thing was half leathery and half stony, forming an insoluble enigma to those experts who sought to ascertain how it was embalmed. In places, bits of its substance were eaten away by time and decay, Rags of some peculiar fabric with suggestions of unknown designs still clung to the object. Just what made it so infinitely horrible and repulsive one could hardly say. For one thing, there was a subtle, indefinable sense of limitless antiquity and utter alienage which affected one like a view from the brink of a monstrous abyss of unplumbed blackness, but mostly it was the expression of crazed fear on the puckered, prognathous, half-shielded face. Such a symbol of infinite, inhuman, cosmic fright could not help communicating the emotion to the beholder amidst a disquieting cloud of mystery and vain conjecture. Among the discriminating few who frequented the Cabot Museum, this relic of an elder, forgotten world soon acquired an unholy frame, though the institution's seclusion and quiet policy prevented it from becoming a popular sensation of the Cardiff giant sort. In the last century, the art of vulgar ballyhoo had not invaded the field of scholarship to the extent it has now succeeded in doing. Naturally, savants of various kinds tried their best to classify the frightful object, though always without success. Theories of a bygone Pacific civilization, of which the Easter Island images and the megalithic masonry of Ponape and Nan Matal 
are conceivable vestiges, were freely circulated among students, and learned journals carried varied and often conflicting speculations on a possible former continent whose peaks survive as the myriad islands of Melanesia and Polynesia. The diversity in dates assigned to the hypothetical vanished culture, or continent, was at once bewildering and amusing, yet some surprisingly relevant allusions were found in certain myths of Tahiti and other islands. Meanwhile, the strange cylinder and its baffling scroll of unknown hieroglyphs, carefully preserved in the museum library, received their due share of attention. No question could exist as to their association with the mummy, hence all realized that in the unraveling of their mystery, the mystery of the shriveled horror would in all probability be unraveled as well. The cylinder, about four inches long by seven-eighths of an inch in diameter, was of a queerly iridescent metal utterly defying chemical analysis and seemingly impervious to all reagents. It was tightly fitted with a cap of the same substance and bore engraved figurings of an evidently decorative and possibly symbolic nature, conventional designs which seemed to follow a peculiarly alien, paradoxical, and doubtfully describable system of geometry. Not less mysterious was the scroll it contained, a neat roll of some thin, bluish-white, unanalyzable membrane coiled round a slim rod of metal like that of the cylinder and unwinding to a length of some two feet. The large, bold hieroglyphs extending in a narrow line down the center of the scroll and penned or painted with a gray pigment defying analysis resembled nothing known to linguists and paleographers and could not be deciphered despite the transmission of photographic copies to every living expert in the given field. It is true that a few scholars, unusually versed in the literature of occultism and magic, found vague resemblances between some of the hieroglyphs and certain primal symbols described or cited in two or three very ancient, obscure, and esoteric texts, such as the Book of Ibon, reputed to descend from forgotten Hyperborea, the Nicotic Fragments, alleged to be pre-human, and the monstrous and forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. None of these resemblances, however, was beyond dispute, and because of the prevailing low estimation of occult studies, no effort was made to circulate copies of the hieroglyphs among mystical specialists. Had such circulation occurred at this early date, the later history of the case might have been very different. Indeed, a glance at the hieroglyphs by any reader of von Yunz's horrible, nameless cults would have established a linkage of unmistakable significance. At this period, however, the readers of that monstrous blasphemy were exceedingly few. Copies have been incredibly scarce in the interval between the suppression of the original Dusseldorf edition, 1839, and of the Bridewell translation, 1845, and the publication of the expurgated reprint by the Golden Goblin Press in 1909. Practically speaking, no occultist or student of the primal past's esoteric lore had his attention called to the strange scroll until the recent outburst of sensational journalism, which precipitated the horrible climax. 2. Thus matters glided along for a half-century following the installation of the frightful mummy at the museum. The gruesome object had a local celebrity among cultivated Bostonians, but no more than that. While the very existence of the cylinder and scroll, after a decade of futile research, was virtually forgotten. So quiet and conservative was the Cabot Museum that no reporter or feature writer ever thought of invading its uneventful precincts for rabble-tickling material. The invasion of Ballyhoo commenced in the spring of 1931 
when a purchase of somewhat spectacular nature, that of the strange objects and inexplicably preserved bodies found in crypts beneath the almost vanished and evilly famous ruins of Chateau Fossaflamme in Avaronia, France, brought the museum prominently into the news columns. True to its hustling policy, the Boston Pillar sent a Sunday feature writer to cover the incident and pad it with an exaggerated general account of the institution itself, and this young man, Stuart Reynolds by name, hit upon the nameless mummy as a potential sensation far surpassing the recent acquisitions nominally forming his chief assignment. A smattering of theosophical lore and a fondness for the speculations of such writers as Colonel Churchward and Lewis Spence concerning lost continents and primal forgotten civilizations made Reynolds especially alert towards any Aeonian relic like the unknown mummy. At the museum, the reporter made himself a nuisance through constant and not always intelligent questionings and endless demands for the movement of encased objects to permit photographs from unusual angles. In the basement library room, he pored endlessly over the strange metal cylinder and its membranous scroll, photographing them from every angle and securing pictures of every bit of the weird hieroglyphed text. He likewise asked to see all books with any bearing whatever on the subject of primal cultures and sunken continents, sitting for three hours taking notes and leaving only in order to hasten to Cambridge for a sight, if permission were granted, of the abhorred and forbidden Necronomicon at the Widener Library. On April 5th, the article appeared in the Sunday Pillar, smothered in photographs of mummy, cylinder, and hieroglyphed scroll, and couched in the peculiarly simpering infantile style which the Pillar affects for the benefit of its vast and mentally immature clientele. Full of inaccuracies, exaggerations, and sensationalism, it was precisely the sort of thing to stir the braininess and fickle interest of the herd, and as a result, the once-quiet museum began to be swarmed with chattering and vacuously staring throngs such as its stately corridors had never known before. There were scholarly and intelligent visitors, too, despite the puerility of the article, the pictures had spoken for themselves, and many persons of mature attainment sometimes see the pillar by accident. I recall one very strange character who appeared during November, a dark, turbaned, and bushily bearded man with a labored, unnatural voice, curiously expressionless face, clumsy hands covered with absurd white mittens, who gave a squalid West End address and called himself Swami Chandraputra. This fellow was unbelievably erudite in occult lore and seemed profoundly and solemnly moved by the resemblance of the hieroglyphs on the scroll to certain signs and symbols of a forgotten elder world about which he professed vast intuitive knowledge. By June, the fame of the mummy and scroll had leaked far beyond Boston, and the museum had inquiries and requests for photographs from occultists and students of Arcana all over the world. This was not altogether pleasing to our staff, since we are a scientific institution without sympathy for fantastic dreamers, yet we answered all questions with civility. One result of these catechisms was a highly learned article in the Occult Review by the famous New Orleans mystic Etienne Laurent de Marigny, in which was asserted the complete identity of some of the odd geometrical designs on the iridescent cylinder and of several of the hieroglyphs of the membranous scroll, with certain ideographs of horrible significance, transcribed from primal monoliths or from the secret rituals of hidden bands of esoteric students and devotees, reproduced in the hellish and suppressed Black Book or Nameless Cults of von Junst. De Marigny recalled the frightful death of von Junst in 1840, a year after the publication of his terrible volume at Dusseldorf, 
and commented on his blood-curdling and partly suspected sources of information. Above all, he emphasized the enormous relevance of the tales with which von Junst linked most of the monstrous ideographs he had reproduced. That these tales, in which a cylinder and scroll were expressly mentioned, held a remarkable suggestion of relationship to the things at the museum no one could deny, yet they were of such breathtaking extravagance, involving such unbelievable sweeps of time and such fantastic anomalies of a forgotten elder world, that one could much more easily admire than believe them. Admire them, the public certainly did, for copying in the press was universal. Illustrated articles sprang up everywhere, telling or purporting to tell the legends in the Black Book, expatiating on the horror of the mummy, comparing the cylinder's designs and the scroll's hieroglyphs with the figures reproduced by von Junst, and indulging in the wildest, most sensational, and most irrational theories and speculations. Attendance at the museum was troubled, and the widespread nature of the interest was attested by the plethora of mail on the subject, most of it inane and superfluous, received at the museum. Apparently, the mummy and its origin formed, for imaginative people, a close rival to the Depression as chief topic of 1931 and 1932. For my own part, the principal effect of the furor was to make me read von Junz's monstrous volume in the Golden Goblin edition, a perusal which left me dizzy and nauseated, yet thankful that I had not seen the utter infamy of the unexpurgated text. 3. The archaic whispers reflected in the Black Book, and linked with designs and symbols so closely akin to what the mysterious scroll and cylinder bore, were indeed of a character to hold one spellbound and not a little awestruck. Leaping an incredible gulf of time, behind all the civilizations, races, and lands we know, they clustered round a vanished nation and a vanished continent of the misty, fabulous dawn years, that to which legend has given the name of Mu, and which old tablets in the primal Nakal tongue spoke of as flourishing 200,000 years ago, when Europe harbored only hybrid entities, and lost Hyperborea knew the nameless worship of black, amorphous Sethagua. There was mention of a kingdom or province called Kina in a very ancient land where the first human people had found monstrous ruins left by those who had dwelt there before, vague waves of unknown entities which had filtered down from the stars and lived out their aeons on a forgotten, nascent world. Kina was a sacred place, since from its midst the bleak basalt cliffs of Mount Yadith Go soared starkly into the sky, topped by a gigantic fortress of cyclopean stone, infinitely older than mankind, and built by the alien spawn of the dark planet Yugoth, which had colonized the Earth before the birth of terrestrial life. The spawn of Yugoth had perished aeons before, but had left behind them one monstrous and terrible living thing which could never die. Their hellish god, or patron demon, Gatanothoa, which lowered and brooded eternally, though unseen, in the crypts beneath that fortress on Yadith Go. No human creature had ever climbed Yadithgo or seen that blasphemous fortress, except as a distant and geometrically abnormal outline against the sky, yet most agreed that Gatanathoa was still there, wallowing and burrowing in unsuspected abysses beneath the megalithic walls. There were always those who believed that sacrifices must be made to Gatanathoa, lest it crawl out of its hidden abysses and waddle horribly through the world of men, as it had once waddled through the primal world of the Yugoth spawn. 
People said that if no victims were offered, Gatanathoa would ooze up to the light of day and lumber down the basalt cliffs of Yadith Go, bringing doom to all it might encounter. For no living thing could behold Gatanathoa, or even a perfect graven image of Gatanathoa, however small, without suffering a change more horrible than death itself. Sight of the god or its image, as all the legends of the Yagath spawn agreed, meant paralysis and petrifaction of a singularly shocking sort, in which the victim was turned to stone and leather on the outside, while the brain within remained perpetually alive, horribly fixed and prisoned through the ages, and maddeningly conscious of the passage of interminable epochs of helpless inaction till chance and time might complete the decay of the petrified shell and leave it exposed to die. Most brains, of course, would go mad long before this aeon-deferred release could arrive. No human eyes, it was said, had ever glimpsed Gatanathoa, though the danger was as great now as it had been for the Yugath spawn. And so there was a cult in Kana which worships Gatanathoa, and each year sacrificed to it twelve young warriors and twelve young maidens. These victims were offered up on flaming altars in the marble temple near the mountain's base, for none dared climb Yadith Go's basalt cliffs or draw near to the Cyclopean pre-human stronghold on its crest. Vast was the power of the priests of Gatanathoa, since upon them alone depended the preservation of Kna and of all the land of Mu from the petrifying emergence of Gatanathoa out of its unknown burrows. There were in the land a hundred priests of the Dark God, under Irnash Mo, the high priest, who walked before King Thabon at the Nath feast, and stood proudly whilst the king knelt at the Doric shrine. Each priest had a marble house, a chest of gold, two hundred slaves, and a hundred concubines, besides immunity from civil law, and the power of life and death over all in Kana save the priests of the king. Yet in spite of these defenders, there was ever a fear in the land lest Gatanathoa slither up from the depths and lurch viciously down to the mountain to bring horror and petrifaction to mankind. In the latter years, the priests forbade men even to guess or imagine what its frightful aspect might be. It was in the year of the Red Moon, estimated as B.C. 173,148 by von Junst, that a human being first dared to breathe defiance against Gatanathoa and its nameless menace. This bold heretic was Tiag, high priest of Shubnagurath and guardian of the copper temple of the goat with a thousand young. Tiag had thought long on the powers of the various gods and had had strange dreams and revelations touching the life of this and earlier worlds. In the end, he felt sure that the gods friendly to man could be arrayed against the hostile gods and believed that Shubnagurath, Nug, and Yeb, as well as Yig, the serpent god, were ready to take sides with man against the tyranny and presumption of Gatanathoa. Inspired by the mother goddess, Tiag wrote down a strange formula in the hieratic Nakal of his order, which he believed would keep the possessor immune from the dark god's petrifying power. With this protection, he reflected, it might be possible for a bold man to climb the dreaded basalt cliffs and, first of all human beings, enter the Cyclopean fortress beneath which Gatanathoa reputedly brooded. 
Face to face with the god and with the power of Shubnaguroth and her sons on his side, Tiag believed that he might be able to bring it to terms and at last deliver mankind from its brooding menace. With humanity freed through his efforts, there would be no limits to the honors he might claim. All the honors of the priests of Gatanathoa would perforce be transferred to him, and even kingship or godhood might conceivably be within his reach. So Tiag wrote his protective formula on a scroll of Thagon membrane, according to von Yunz, the inner skin of the extinct Yakith lizard, and enclosed it in a carven cylinder of Ia metal, the metal brought by the Elder Ones from Yagoth and found in no mine of earth. This charm, carried in his robe, would make him proof against the menace of Gatanathoa. It would even restore the Dark God's petrified victims if that monstrous entity should ever emerge and begin its devastations. Thus, he proposed to go up the shunned and man-untrodden mountain, invade the alien-angled citadel of Cyclopean stone, and confront the shocking devil entity in its lair. Of what would follow, he could not even guess, but the hope of being mankind's savior lent strength to his will. He had, however, reckoned without the jealousy and self-interest of Gatanathoa's pampered priests. No sooner did they hear of his plan than, fearful for their prestige and privilege in case the demon god should be dethroned, they set up a frantic clamor against the so-called sacrilege, crying that no man might prevail against Gatanathoa and that any effort to seek it out would merely provoke it to a hellish onslaught against mankind, which no spell or priestcraft could hope to avert. With those cries, they hoped to turn the public mind against Tiag. Yet such was the people's yearning for freedom from Gatanathoa, and such their confidence in the skill and zeal of Tiag, that all their protestations came to naught. Even the king, usually a puppet of the priests, refused to forbid Tiag's daring pilgrimage. It was then that the priests of Gatanathoa did by stealth what they could not do openly. One night, Ernash Mo, the high priest, stole to Tiag in his temple chamber and took from his sleeping form the metal cylinder, silently drawing out the potent scroll and putting in its place another scroll of great similitude, yet varied enough to have no power against any god or demon. When the cylinder was slipped back into the sleeper's cloak, Ernash Mo was content, for he knew Tiag was little likely to study that cylinder's contents again. Thinking himself protected by the true scroll, the heretic would march up the forbidden mountain and into the evil presence, and Gatanathoa, unchecked by any magic, would take care of the rest. It would no longer be needful for Gatanathoa's priests to preach against the defiance. Let Tiag go his way and meet his doom. And secretly, the priests would always cherish the stolen scroll the true and potent charm, handing it down from one high priest to another for use in any dim future when it might be needed to contravene the devil god's will. So the rest of the night Yernash Mo slept in great peace with the true scroll in a new cylinder fashioned for its harborage. It was dawn on the day of the sky flames, nomenclature undefined by von Junst, that Tiag, amidst the prayers and chanting of the people, and with King Theban's blessing on his head, started up the dreaded mountain with a staff of Tlathwood in his right hand. Within his robe was the cylinder holding what he thought to be the true charm, for he had indeed failed to find out the imposture. 
nor did he see any irony in the prayers which Irnash Mo and the other priests of Gatanathoa intoned for his safety and success. All that morning the people stood and watched as Tiog's dwindling form struggled up the shunned basalt slope, hitherto alien to men's footsteps, and many stayed watching long after he had vanished where a perilous ledge led round the mountain's hidden side. That night a few sensitive dreamers thought they heard a faint tremor convulsing the hated peak, though most ridiculed them for the statement. Next day vast crowds watched the mountain and prayed, and wondered how soon Tiog would return. And so the next day, and the next. For weeks they hoped and waited. And then they wept. Nor did anyone ever see Tiog, who would have saved mankind from fears, again. Thereafter, men shuddered at Tiog's presumption, and tried not to think of the punishment his impiety had met. And the priests of Gatanathoa smiled to those who might resent the god's will, or challenge its right to the sacrifices. In later years, the ruse of Irnashmo became known to the people, yet the knowledge availed not to change the general feeling that Gatanathoa were better left alone. None ever dared to defy it again, and so the ages rolled on, and king succeeded king, and high priest succeeded high priest, and nations rose and decayed, and lands rose above the sea and returned into the sea, and with many millennia, decay fell upon Cana, till at last, on a hideous day of storm and thunder, terrific rumbling and mountain-high waves, all the land of Mu sank into the sea forever. Yet down the later aeons, thin streams of ancient secrets trickled. In distant lands there met together gray-faced fugitives who had survived the sea fiend's rage, and strange skies drank the smoke of altars reared to vanish gods and demons. Though none knew to what bottomless deep the sacred peak and cyclopean fortress of dreaded Katanathoa had sunk, there were still those who mumbled its name and offered to it nameless sacrifices, lest it bubble up through leagues of ocean and shamble among men spreading horror and petrifaction. Around the scattered priests grew the rudiments of a dark and secret cult, secret because the people of the new lands had other gods and devils, and thought only evil of elder and alien ones, and within that cult many hideous things were done, and many strange objects cherished. It was whispered that a certain line of elusive priests still harbored the true charm against Gatanathoa, which Irnash Mo stole from the sleeping Tiog, though none remained who could read or understand the cryptic syllables, or who could even guess in what part of the world the lost Kana, the dreaded peak of Yadith Go, and the titan fortress of the devil god had lain. Though it flourished chiefly in those Pacific regions around which Mu itself had once stretched, there were rumors of the hidden and detested cult of Gatanathoa in ill-fated Atlantis, and on the abhorred plateau of Lang. Von Junst implied its presence in the fabled subterranean kingdom of Kinyan and gave clear evidence that it had penetrated Egypt, Chaldea, Persia, China, the forgotten Semite empires of Africa, and Mexico and Peru in the New World. That it had a strong connection with the witchcraft movement in Europe, against which the bulls of popes were vainly directed, he more than strongly hinted. 
The West, however, was never favorable to its growth, and public indignation, aroused by glimpses of hideous rites and nameless sacrifices, wholly stamped out many of its branches. In the end, it became a hunted, doubly furtive underground affair, yet never could its nucleus be quite exterminated. It always survived, somehow, chiefly in the Far East and on the Pacific Islands, where its teachings became merged into the esoteric lore of the Polynesian Arioi. Von Junst gave subtle and disquieting hints of actual contact with the cult, so that as I read, I shuddered at what was rumored about his death. He spoke of the growth of certain ideas regarding the appearance of the devil god, a creature which no human being, unless it were the too daring Tiag who had never returned, had ever seen, and contrasted this habit of speculation with the taboo prevailing in ancient Mu against any attempt to imagine what the horror looked like. There was a peculiar fearfulness about the devotee's odd and fascinated whispers on this subject, whispers heavy with morbid curiosity concerning the precise nature of what Tiag might have confronted in that frightful pre-human edifice on the dreaded and now sunken mountains before the end, if it was an end, finally came, and I felt oddly disturbed by the German scholar's oblique and insidious references to this topic. Scarcely less disturbing were von Junz's conjectures on the whereabouts of the stolen scroll of cantrips against Gatanathoa, and on the ultimate uses to which this scroll might be put. Despite all my assurances that the whole matter was purely mythical, I could not help shivering at the notion of a latter-day emergence of the monstrous god, and at the picture of a humanity turned suddenly to a race of abnormal statues, each encasing a living brain doomed to inert and helpless consciousness for untold aeons of futurity. The old Dusseldorf savant had a poisonous way of suggesting more than he stated, and I could understand why his damnable book was suppressed in so many countries as blasphemous, dangerous, and unclean. I writhed with repulsion, yet the thing exerted an unholy fascination, and I could not lay it down till I had finished it. The alleged reproductions of designs and ideographs from Mu were marvelously and startlingly like the markings on the strange cylinder, and the characters on the scroll and the whole account teemed with details having vague, irritating suggestions of resemblance to things connected with the hideous mummy. The cylinder and scroll, the Pacific setting, the persistent notion of old Captain Weatherby that the Cyclopean crypt where the mummy was found had once lain under a vast building. Somehow, I was vaguely glad that the volcanic island had sunk before that massive suggestion of a trap door could be opened. And that is the end of part one. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to join me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Every dollar goes back into the show and is used for hosting fees, paying guest readers, and just generally burning it when we're cold, because what else are we going to do with so much money? <laughs> Save it? Please go and get vaccinated for anything you are available for, and maybe a few things you don't strictly need, but could probably use an update on. MMR, does, does that need to be updated? Who knows? Not me. Get it anyway. Get your flu shot, your COVID booster. If a smallpox or polio or diphtheria is available, get it. Probably not all at once, though. That'll either turn you into a zombie and then we'll have much bigger problems, or it will give you superpowers. And if The Boys and Chronicle has taught us anything, it's that people shouldn't have superpowers under any circumstances. 
If you see some sort of bigot out and about and doing a bigotry, pretend to be their friend. Draw them in close. Take them into your confidence. Make them fall in love with you and then ghost them, leaving them only a note that their bigotry is disgusting and that's why you're shattering their heart. They don't deserve anything better. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening and have a good week. Oh my God, it's so hot in here.